Today is February 12th, 2020, and uh, nine years ago yesterday, four people lost their lives at the hands of a single man. Uh, the first person, his name is Alexander Kuznetsov, and his only crime is marrying a woman who had a son that is pure evil. At some point in the early morning hours, uh, he had an argument with this person. And in a fit of rage, Maxim Gelman stabbed and butchered Alexander Kuznetsov approximately 55 times. And in the middle of the butchering, the original instrument that he was killing him with actually broke and he reached on the counter and grabbed an eight inch chef's knife and continued uh, killing Mr. Kuznetsov. By all accounts, um, Gelman was leaving New York and um, at a certain point decided to turn around. And this led him to the house of Yelena Bolchenko and her mother. And when he got there, Yelena was not home. Yelena, uh, there's been different reports of, of exactly about what sort of relationship, friendship that she had with uh, Maxim. And from what I can see, they may have run in the same circles at a certain point. He may have developed uh, an affection for her, but it was never reciprocated. Uh, she had a boyfriend. She didn't seem to have any interest in him, and maybe that was something that he had an issue with. And when he got to Yelena's house, Yelena was not there, but her mother was there. And again, by all accounts, uh, Yelena's mom would not give up her daughter, and Maxim killed her as well. And Mrs. Bolchenko became his second victim. He was, uh, I guess, driving around Brooklyn looking for Yelena, and eventually the two would uh, actually come face-to-face -face at Yelena's house. I, I don't remember exactly if uh, Yelena was alerted to the condition of her mother or she just happened to go home, uh, but while she was home, uh, Gelman ended up back at the house and um, brutally attacked her uh, to the point where he almost decapitated her in front of her own house. While he was on the run from police, uh, he was carjacking people and um, attacking them. His last victim, his last murder victim, was a gentleman named Stephen Tannenbaum, uh, who he just... Uh, basically hit him with a car going uh, at a high rate of speed and Mr. Tannenbaum I guess went head over heels and uh, I don't know if he died at the scene or at the hospital but uh, he became the fourth murder victim on uh, February 11th 2011 so after you murder four people obviously it's going to get the attention of the police and Gelman was now on the run. 
and um, the search went on through the early evening, the late evening, and into the morning of February 12th. And uh, while he was on the run, he was, uh, again, carjacking people, uh, attacking them. One gentleman he uh, kicked out of the car at a high rate of speed. That gentleman's lucky to be alive. And then on the morning of February 12th, Gilman was spotted uh, in the subway stations in the bowels of New York City. Uh, apparently a woman was reading the newspaper and uh, he saw that she was reading a story about him and he went up to her and said, you believe what they're writing about me, it's not true and I guess swiped the paper out of her hand or knocked it out of her hand, but let her be, thank God. And um, she went above ground and called the police and said, listen, I, uh, I think I just saw Maxim Gelman. So the police converged on the subway and uh, the manhunt began. Also on the morning of February 12th, I was uh, on my way to work from Philadelphia and my commute took me from, my, I drove from Philadelphia to New Jersey, Hamilton Station. And uh, from Hamilton Station, I took the New Jersey Transit train into Penn Station. So once I get to Penn Station, my daily commute takes me on the one train. If you are familiar with New York subways, uh, you know that uh, there are a few different lines that run at Penn Station. Uh, on one end of the station is the one, two, and the three, and on the other end of the station is the A, C, and E trains. I take the one train every day because it runs local and a few stops. Uh, it goes uh, Penn Station, then 42nd, 50th, 59th, and 66th, and 66th is where I get off. If I take the express trains, I have to go to 72nd and then walk six blocks backwards. This particular day, though, there were uh, they were working, I guess the construction workers were working on the one track, or working on some tracks, because they were all running. And uh, the only thing was they were all running express. The one, the two, and the three were all running express. So when I got to the platform of the one train, which is something I do every day, I saw that it was running express. And this had happened numerous times before. And never once did I ever think to go to the express track. And the only advantage of going to the express track would be double the trains. So in theory, I would get to work uh, quicker because uh, double the trains aren't on that track. The chances of a train uh, hitting the express track are twice as good as a train hitting the local track. Uh, regardless of which train I take that day, the one, the two, or the three, I'm expressing the 72nd and I'm walking back down to 66th Street. And this has happened numerous times before and it has happened numerous times since. I've never once gone to the express tracks except for that day. So that day, I make my way to the express tracks. First train that pulls up is an uptown number three. Um, I get on the front of the train, uh, the first car. I generally go towards the front or the back. If you're Again, if you're familiar with the New York subways, you know most people get on in the middle and the front and the back of the train while I would never say they're empty, they 
tend to have uh, a little more space in terms of less volume of people. So um, this particular day, I got on in the in the first car, and I sat basically right behind the motorman. Um, the motorman is situated in the cab of the first car of the consist of the train and the mechanism to drive the train is on the right side of the cab. I was on the other side of the wall from the motorman uh, sitting in the two-seater. Two now, this is where my world and Maxim Gelman's world will converge. So um, I get on the train and the doors do not close right away and eventually two police officers get on the train. And uh, I've been on the subway a million times where cops have gotten on the train. Uh, they either stay on for one stop or they stay on for multiple stops. And, uh, but they always stay in the part of the train with the passengers. I've never once seen them go into the cab with the motorman. Well, this particular day, the two police officers that got on uh, did go in to uh to ride with the motorman which i thought was a little weird but whatever you know i didn't know what exactly was going on but what was weirder was excuse me when they went in the train didn't move right away and uh eventually the doors closed and we started crawling uh subways even when they go slow they don't go this slow we were literally crawling and it was noticeable but what else was noticeable was that uh, a gentleman came up to the door that leads to the motorman's cab and starts banging on the door. And this is literally happening right in front of me. And he's banging on the door and he says, let me in. And the person on the other side of the door says, who are you? And then the person that's in front of me says, I'm the police. The voice on the other side of the door says, you're not the police. And with that, the person walks away. So it was kind of a weird incident, but it's New York City, so I don't ever think twice about anything because it's New York City. It's a cesspool, and, you know, and I mean, it was, you know, in, in 2011, it wasn't as bad as it is now, but, it, you know, it's disgusting. So um, the gentleman walks back. And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, whatever. That was weird, but uh, whatever. As soon as that man walks back, another man that was standing next to me bolts to the door and is tapping on the door and looking over his shoulder and tapping on the door and looking over his shoulder. And this guy is scared shitless. He is absolutely petrified. I can see the look in his eye. I can see the fear in his eye. He is trying with every fiber of his being to get the police to come out. And nobody comes out. And as he's looking over his shoulder, the first guy starts making his way back up to the area of the door. Now, keep in mind, this door has a window. So you can see through the window either way. So when this first conversation, let me in, who are you, is going on, the person who eventually turned out to be Maxim Gelman, who thinks he's having a conversation with the motorman, 
is actually having a conversation with police officer Terrence Howell. But he doesn't know this. Now, Terrence Howell knows who he's having a conversation with because Terrence Howell and his partner, Tamara Taylor, are on the subway for one reason. They are looking for Maxim Yelman, the person who's on the other side of the door, banging on it, wanting access to the motorman's cab. So getting back to where we were in the story, as the first gentleman comes up, the second gentleman who is in a panic hightails it back next to me. The first guy, again, Maxim Gelman, he walks up. He stands about three feet from the door, about two feet from me. He looks down at me. I look up at him, and he reaches into the back of his jacket. He takes out an eight-inch chef's knife, looks down at me, and says, you're going to die, you're going to die. And without even thinking, he just pumps that knife right into my face uh, below my left eye. And what I try to tell people is it really does happen in slow motion. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, I'm sitting there and there's a guy that's telling me I'm going to die. And then in slow motion, he takes out this giant knife. And I can actually remember, I'm, I'm actually getting goosebumps right now. I remember looking at the blade and seeing how dirty it was. And at first, um, I thought it was dirt or some sort of filth. And I later found out that it was just dried blood from the other victims. Um, so he pumps me in the face, and now I have a decision to make. I we're either going to fight or I'm going to let him carve me uh, like a pumpkin. And I, it's not that I even really thought about it. It was just instinct. So um, I shot in for his legs. I, I, I say I was going for a single leg takedown, and um, I was. it was ab absolutely 100% the absolute worst single leg takedown ever because I shot in too high, and it ended up being more like a football tackle. So uh, while I was able to get him down by wrapping myself around his waist and the force of, of me kind of launching myself out of the seat, I was able to get him down. But unfortunately, while I was in the process of that, it gave him free reign to the back of my head. And he got me on the right side of my head and in the upper left-hand corner of the back of my head and then the uh, lower portion of the right side of my head, which was the deepest wound. And uh, there's a photo that has never been made public. And that photo basically shows the back of my head that looks like a Halloween mask, the kind where you put it over your head and then the, the, uh, the back of it kind of flaps out and you tuck it in under your shirt. Um, the scar on the back of my head is horizontal, but the wound was ended, actually ended up making the, the back of my head vertical. And you can, uh, you can actually see my skull in that picture. No one's uh, ever seen that except for me and the DA and the grand jury and maybe a few other people, but uh, that's true. I would love to get a copy of that to show everybody, but I don't think that's going to happen. So he, uh, he stabs me uh, three times, uh, like I said, one on the right side of my head and two on the back, but I'm able to get him down, and uh, now I'm in dominant position. But he's just, uh, he's jacked up on, I don't know what mix of drugs, whatever, but uh, he still has the knife in his hand and I'm on top of him and he's flailing up at me and I'm trying to catch his wrist and uh, get the knife away from him. And the first time that he flails up, uh, I miss and he slices me in the 
tricep, I believe, my left tricep. And the second time uh, he flails up and I miss again and he slices me in the left thumb. Basically, if you look at your thumb right now, it's the part where the web is that connects your thumb to your pointer finger, index finger, whatever you call that. Uh, third time that he flailed up with the knife, I was able to catch it. I slammed his arm down, knife popped out. And uh, at this point is when I got the tap on the shoulder from uh, Officer Terrence Howell that says, you can get up now, we got him. And uh, yeah, so if you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, where, where were the police during this whole thing? Uh, they, were, uh, they were watching it from the motorman's compartment through the window and only sprang into action once he was down and disarmed. So I, at this point, had lost a lot of blood. And uh, I got up and I sat on the subway seats and I watched uh, Terrence Howell, who's a large man, struggle to get Maxim Gelman in cuffs. I saw his partner, Tamara Taylor, make no effort to get on her knees and help him only asking him if she should mace Gelman. At that point, Terrence Howell told her no, because then the mace would stay in the subway car. There was no way to get it out, and it would just affect a lot of other people, probably including them. So um, he said not to do it. While I'm sitting there watching Howell struggle with this guy and Taylor do absolutely nothing, I'm also watching the blood and the life pour out of the back of my head. And um, the best way I can equate this uh, is to have you, next time you take a shower, just turn your back to the shower head and um, have the water hit you in the back of the neck and the way that it, it drips down both sides of your chest. That's what I was looking at as far as blood goes. And at some point I realized that we are in the tunnel. We're not moving and I'm bleeding to death. And I am sitting there, and I honestly, at a certain point, not too far after this, realize I may die down here, and I'm in a giant coffin, and I may never see my wife and kids again. And I start to panic. And um, uh, now, while this is all going on, more and more cops are entering the train from the back of the train, because again, we're stuck in the tunnel. And I see more and more cops enter the train. And I want you to keep in mind that uh, at this point, there are two cops on the train. as Terrence Howell and Tamara Taylor. They watched the entire incident go down without doing a damn thing. But there are only two cops on the train at this point while they are apprehending Maxim Gelman after I took him down and disarmed him, which is very important for a later part of the story. So more and more cops are coming in from the back and they're all surrounding Gelman, <laughs> just running past me. And uh, no one seems to really notice that I'm there and I'm sitting in a puddle of my own blood. And um, eventually, uh, a man who I found out later, his name is Alfred Douglas, who's a construction worker. Um, Alfred Douglas just starts yelling at all the passengers saying, Nobody's going to help this guy. You're going to let him die. Nobody, nobody can help him. Does anyone have any 
paper towels or napkins or anything, and I believe a woman gave him some napkins or tissues, and uh, he basically applied pressure to the deepest wound on the back of my head, and I believe I'm here today because of Alfred Douglas, and uh, only Alfred Douglas, not uh, Terrence Howell or Tamara Taylor at all. While I'm sitting here on the train, bleeding to death, in the tunnel, not moving, we're sitting there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and we are not moving, and I am shitting myself because I am scared to death that I'm going to die down here. And uh, a cop walks by me, and uh, I grab the wrist, and I say, hey, um, are you married? And they say, yeah, I am married. I go, you know, I'm married too. I said, I'd like to see my wife. I got to get to a hospital or I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. We're going to get the train moving. I said, why aren't we moving? Well, the, the, we stopped the train and turned the power off because the other cops are on the tracks. And we can't turn the power on until we know they're all off. So I said, okay, um, I'm going to sit here and bleed to death and wait for the power to come back on. But okay. So more time goes by, more time goes by, and more time goes by. And I am starting to come to the realization that I'm going to die. And that is a horrible, horrible thing to come to terms with. I am literally sitting there waiting for my life to start running, flashing before my eyes, because I don't see any end in sight. There was one officer who had come over and asked me if I was okay, and I told him no. I said, we got to go. Uh, but then he kind of went off and did his own thing with, with everyone else because at this point, Gelman was still on the train and it takes a million officers to handle this guy and nobody to come pay attention to me. Thank God for Alfred Douglas. Another cop walks by, grab him by the wrist, and I go, hey, do you have kids? Yeah, I have kids. I go, so do I. I got two little boys and... Uh, uh, I have to get off this train. Uh, they need me. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they said, don't worry. Um, the paramedics are on their way. They're uh, they're coming from the back of the train. And uh, just the way that you saw us come on the train, that's how the paramedics are coming on the train. So just keep an eye on the back. Just watch the back. That's where they're coming from. So I, I had no reason not to believe him, and I, uh, I said, okay, so terrific. And then next thing I know, probably after 20, 25 minutes, all of a sudden the train starts moving. And I say, wait a second, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What about the paramedics? And one of the cops says, oh, they're waiting for us at 42nd Street. So they were never coming from the back of the train like I was told. They had been at 42nd Street the whole time. Another lie that I was told. So uh, thankfully, even if we were still at Penn Station, you know, although obviously if we were still at Penn Station, they would have opened the doors, but let's just say we were a block away from Penn Station. From Penn Station to 42nd Street is less than a minute. So once the train started going, uh, we pull into 42nd Street, and obviously the station is cleared, except for uh, police and paramedics. Doors open, and um, they get Gilman out. The paramedics come to me. They lift me off the train uh, seat, 
to the subway seat to get me onto the uh, stretcher. And uh, when they do that, I pass out. And, uh, but when I pass out, I'm, I can hear what's going on. It's sort of like when you're at home, excuse me, and you're, um, you're dozing off, but you can kind of hear the TV or whatever's going on around you. So while my eyes were, I, I, I don't even know if my eyes were closed, to be honest. I actually think I remember someone saying they were open, but um, I can't confirm that. But I heard everything that was going on behind me. And I heard them trying to get me to come back and uh, wake up. And the female cop was Tamara Taylor. She was behind me talking. I don't know if she was talking to Howell or one of the other cops. And I heard her talk about me. And one of the words she used to, to describe me was likely. I don't know what that means. But uh, I wake up. And now this is the first time I'm feeling any pain. The whole time that everything had gone on, through the altercation with Gelman, through the being stabbed seven times. Um, I guess the adrenaline, I never, I never felt any pain. Um, you know, you feel your heartbeat through every part of your body, but you don't feel any pain. And when I woke up from passing out, that is when I felt pain. And uh, I, it's probably, it's the most indescribable, excruciating pain I've ever felt. And uh, I've, I, Basically, I've said it's kind of like lighting your head on fire and uh, just pouring gasoline on your head, lighting it on fire. It was that bad. And uh, so they, uh, they carried me up the stairs and uh, a cop, I don't know if he was making a joke or he was just an ignorant asshole, but uh, he says, is that the perp or the Vic? And I said, come on, man. You know I'm not the... You know, I'm not the perp. Come on, give me a break. But uh, they load me into the ambulance, and the paramedics could not have been better. Um, uh, luckily, it was early. There wasn't a lot of traffic in New York that early in the morning. And I'm basically <laughs> telling them, man, keep me awake. Keep me alive. I can't die. Please don't let me die. I am basically begging for my life. I want these... Uh, I want the paramedic to talk to me and keep me alive. I know that I had asked him for some uh, painkiller, and he said, look, we can't keep any painkillers back here. They wouldn't last too long. And I, when he said that, I said, yeah, that makes sense and everything. But fortunately, we kept talking the whole time. I didn't lose consciousness again, even though I probably wanted to because the pain was insane. But he kept assuring me that they were waiting for me at Bellevue. Uh, they had the morphine at the ready, and... Uh, once we got there, it'd be taken care of, and uh, he was being truthful. And uh, before I knew it, we were at Bellevue. They were getting me out of the ambulance, and we're going through the doors, and we go to this room, and I mean, there's got to be 10, 15 people. Next thing I know, there's five more people, 10 more people. There is a room full of people, and uh, they're cutting my clothes off me, and I know I said, hey, everything is up here on my head and my hands and my arm, and they go, well, we just got to check. And I mean, obviously, they have to check, but it's a smart thing. You know, you're in a knife fight. You don't know uh, everywhere you're cut, but um, so I'm lying on the bed, and, I, and they, <laughs> they got the morphine in me immediately. It did not take long for me to uh, not feel my head pulsing at uh like it was before I got there. And um, 
while they were doing their work to me, a police officer came to the head of the bed with a mugshot of Maxim Gelman. And he said, is this the guy that did this to you? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, you're a hero. And I said, well, I'm not a hero. Why am I a hero? And he said, well, he killed four people last night. And uh, I always tell people that's the part of the movie where they kind of play dramatic music and they just kind of focus on my face because I honest, that's where time stood still because I, you know, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It, that doesn't happen to me. It doesn't happen to people I know. That just happens to people in the newspaper and in Hollywood. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. But uh, yeah, it happened. So um, that was when I realized that, uh, well, I mean, I shouldn't say that's when I realized how lucky I was because obviously I was still alive. I knew how lucky I was, but obviously this guy meant business. He wasn't just some run-of-the-mill asshole. He was a, a Hall of Fame asshole. So, so now um, they take me, once they get me stabilized, uh, they take me to a room and now they're going to uh, uh, examine me and decide how they're going to go about uh, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And um, the doctors there were phenomenal. The, there was one plastic surgeon who, uh, who looked at my thumb. Uh, that was kind of an arrogant douchebag. But uh, everyone else that was, was there was really, really great. They were really nice and uh, you know, they were, they, they talked me through everything and they, when they shot my head up with, uh, I don't know, uh, Novocaine's probably not the right word. I think that's for like your teeth, but whatever it is that they shot me up with so I wouldn't feel the pain of the staples going in and they were like, look, this is going to hurt, you know, and they were right, it hurt. But once I was, uh, once I was good, I, it's a weird sensation hearing staples go into your head. But uh, fortunately, I only felt the pressure. I didn't feel any pain. And once they got me stabilized, I, there were, I was talking to some of the detectives, and uh, that was a, now the tough part was that I had to uh, get in touch with my wife, who was back in Philadelphia working. And uh, I said, you can call her, but uh, we don't really pick up the phone on numbers we don't know, and we're not going to know your number. She's not going to pick up. But he tried, and of course she did not pick up. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, I said, you know, give me my phone. I'll call her, and uh, I'll let her know what's going on. And so I call her, and she picks up the phone, and uh, she was always very, very busy on Saturday mornings doing the books for a local health club. And uh, so I remember, and I said, uh, and there was an incident on the subway. I was, uh, I was stabbed a bunch of times. I'm in the hospital. Uh, I'm okay, and, you know, but I just, you know. And she's like, come on, Joe, stop fucking around, and, you know, I don't have time for this. And, you know, she was right to do that. I have a stupid sense of humor, so I'm sure a lot of guys probably have the same sense of humor, and your wives would probably say the same thing, stop fucking around. So uh, I was like, okay. So I said, uh, I said, Ann, I said, listen to me very carefully. Um, I said, there was an incident on the subway. I was stabbed. I was attacked with a knife. I'm telling the truth. I am at Bellevue Hospital. I'm okay. Uh, but you do need to come up here. And 
that's a tough part of the story for me because I, I kind of felt like uh, I felt the life kind of drain out of her there. And I just heard her screaming and uh, I just said, look, I'm going to hang up and the detective's going to call you and give you the details. And, you know, it was that was tough. Um, so then after that, uh, I had him call my sister, who at the time was a, a New York City police officer, and give her the details, and then she could pass it on to my mom, and, uh, you know, they could come in. Um, so uh, basically he reached out to my wife. He basically filled her in as much as he could, and my wife went home, packed a bag, and uh, grabbed Joey and Dom and made the trip up from Philadelphia. And uh, this is a tough part for me to talk about um, because <laughs> this is the worst part. I'm sitting here with uh, my head is lumpy and cut and uh, stitched and stapled and I'm in a panic because uh, my wife and kids are driving up and they don't know what they're driving into. So um, my my sister and uh, I guess basically everybody that wasn't my wife and my kids or my dad and my uh, stepmom are in Kansas, so obviously they're not coming. Um, but everybody that wasn't Andrea and my sons uh, were coming from the island. So they got there relatively quickly. And uh, once my sister had uh, talked to the detective face to face and I was done talking to her I said please just wait outside for Andrea to get here because she's not going to know what to do maybe just let them jump out of the car and uh, uh, let them come in and just park whatever and and uh, just basically uh, lied in the bed and uh, waited for uh, Andrea and the boys to get there and I know I heard I think it was Dominic I had heard and uh, I remember that I waited for them to peek through the curtain and uh, that was awesome. And I think I was so happy to uh, to see them that I just got this big smile on my face. And I, I think it probably put them at ease. And that helped everything. Unfortunately, most of the damage was to the side and the back of my head. Obviously, my, uh, my left eye and, and face was banged up a bit. But they didn't see the back, which is really good at that point. So, after meeting with them, uh, you know, uh, for a little bit, having my whole family there, um, like I said, except for my dad and my stepmom there in Kansas, but, uh, and at this point, they don't know yet. Uh, you know, everyone goes home, goes back to Long Island to my mom's, uh, except for Andrea, she kind of stays back and hangs with me and, and everything else, so. Uh, they put us in a room, and now uh, we're just kind of hanging out. I'm resting, listening to the many messages I have on my phone because uh, now it's in the news. So people are putting two and two together, or they're putting my face or my name out there. So now my phone's going crazy. So I'm listening to some of the messages. And we have the news on. And uh, I hear the anchor say, well, coming up, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and uh, 
Commissioner Kelly addressed the media about the apprehension of Maxim Gelman. So uh, Andrea and I say, okay, let's uh, let's keep this on. And when they come back from commercial, they go to uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and Mayor Bloomberg says, uh, thanks to the swift action of NYPD officers Terrence Howell and Tamara Taylor, and off-duty officer Marcelo Razo, the uh, police were able to apprehend Maxim Gelman on an uptown uh, number three train earlier this morning. And, I, I, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm on the morphine and I'm kind of in a relaxed state as much as I can be. And I look at Andrea and she looks at me and I was like, did he just say what I think he said? And uh, yeah, she was pissed and I was as pissed as I could be in that state. And I go, why would he say that? And I said, I, there were just two cops there, you know, but I was like, okay, but I never forget that. And, um, you know, the rest of the night was kind of just, you know, talking to my wife and spending time with her and just uh, real fortunate that I'm still around and um, just having the medical personnel check on me, so be it. Didn't sleep much, obviously, and that, it's not that I was having nightmares or anything. Uh, I just felt like someone had stitched rocks in the back of my head, so it wasn't very comfortable. So uh, Sunday morning comes, and they say, well, we're going to let you go today. And I go, really? That seems kind of quick, don't you think? And I wasn't... I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't looking to stay. I was just kind of shocked, but I guess it had something to do with insurance, but uh, so be it. Um, I wasn't upset to leave. I, like I said, I was just surprised. And um, while we are in the room, a reporter from the Daily News comes in and was uh, hoping they talk to me to get my version of the story. So... I said, where should I start? And she goes, well, start from the beginning. And I, uh, I start talking to her and everything, and I'm telling her basically the story that I just told you. And she stops me and goes, wait a second, you're the one that took him down? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, that's not what the police are saying. And I said, well, I don't know exactly what they're saying, but this is the truth. And she's like, wait a second. So she has a copy of that Sunday Daily News. She has a copy of the Post. And it's just the, the story that the police are giving are about these hero cops. And um, I said, well, that's, that's not what happened. I said, we, I said, that's, you know, I have all these wounds on me. That's from hand-to-hand -hand combat with someone with a knife. So uh, she says, go on, please continue. And so I tell her the rest of the story, like I said, that uh, I told you guys. And... She says, oh, can I have an exclusive? And I said, listen, I, I have to assume that you're not the only reporter that's going to want to talk to me. So I, I, I understand everyone has a job to do, so I don't want to give you an exclusive. You are the first one, though, so I would take it and run with it until the others come. And uh, she said she'd be in touch, and I gave her the whole story. And um, a little while later, a reporter from the Post came, and basically the same thing happened until uh, the hospital people came in and kicked them out, even though I told them it was okay. And they were like, no, 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 they, they have to go. And 
I don't know if that was something that the police or the city didn't want them there because I don't I don't know if the news story had broken yet, but um, they were kicking them out, and uh, my aunt and my cousin came and they told me there was a reporter downstairs from the New York Times that they wouldn't let up, and again this just all seemed weird to me. I'm telling them it's okay, but they would not let them up, and so be it. So uh, when I'm finally discharged. I go downstairs, I talk to the Times reporter, and um, I just remember I'm on the way home, and my phone is blowing up, and it's every news person, a news organization, and their dog wanting to talk to me, uh, and at that point is when I knew for sure that the Daily News story had broken, and maybe the other newspapers as well, but the Daily News one was the most thorough, so... Um, that was an eventful ride home, uh, back to my mom's. And, uh, you know, it, it's, as I, re you know, part of the reason you're probably wondering why I'm doing this. This is, uh, my podcast is not about me. It's about, uh, hockey fighting and, and the Islanders, uh, enforcers. Um, but if you follow me on Twitter, you know that every year on the anniversary, I do a, a long Twitter thread, um, tweet after tweet of details about uh, what happened and honestly every year um, it becomes more and more of a chore and it's actually real time consuming it probably takes me upwards of an hour um, to do the whole thing because you have to change the date obviously and I want to tag people and um, you know nothing really comes out of it not that I expect a miracle to come out of it but um, nothing really comes out of it so I was thinking uh you know, instead of wasting my time with this, I now have this platform where I can just get things out. And there's a particular reason why I'm, I'm verbalizing this today. So, um, so I, I, I did a lot of interviews and uh, a lot of people were very generous. Uh, Dana White at the UFC was phenomenal. Um, you know, there were different organizations, the Islanders, the Flyers reached out, Ringling Brothers, uh, Circus was in Philadelphia at the time, they reached out. Um, I, I'm really hesitant to name, I really shouldn't have named anybody because I know there's probably a bunch of people and organizations that uh, I'm leaving out. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I shouldn't do that. Uh, Glory Kickboxing was phenomenal to me. Um, you know, I, I, I apologize. I, I shouldn't, I really shouldn't have said anybody. Uh, those were just some of the ones that, uh, that came to mind. And, uh, but there were so many people that reached out to me in support that it was so overwhelming, the love that I felt. And, uh, uh, it was amazing and it really helped in my recovery. And I thank everybody that, that did that. So I was out of work, um, maybe for three weeks to a month. And, uh, oh, well, here we go. I skipped the best part. Excuse me. Well, not the best part, but. So I'm back at my mom's, and I know uh, we're going to stay there for a few days because I was told that I'm going to have to testify before the grand jury uh, at some point that week. So um, go to the courthouse, and uh, I think, yeah, I went for, it was me and Howell and Taylor. 
And you know, at this point, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what happened. Uh, a lot of my early interviews, um, I deferred credit to to the police because uh, I didn't want any of the attention. And I feel like, like I said, I have my sister was a police officer. I have cousins on my wife's side that are police officers, and I know that they have a tough job, and they risk a lot of them risk their life every day. Um, so I was looking to just give credit to someone else. And um, they go to testify that day, and um, it was very emotional. And um, I broke down, I know that. It, it, was, uh, it was overwhelming. And uh, when I was done, I left, and I, I was sitting in the courtroom. I didn't know I could leave. And I ended up sitting next to Tamara Taylor while Howell went in to testify. And uh, we didn't really say too much to each other, but I don't remember how it came up. And I, I remember saying to her, oh, yeah, well, geez, I left out a big part of, the, of this at the hospital with my sister. But I remember telling Tamara Taylor, I remember when we were on the train and you called me likely. And she just looked at me with this look in her face like, you remember that? And I go, yeah, I remember the whole thing. And she just got real quiet. And then um, I remember asking someone, can I leave? And they said, yeah, you don't have to stay. So I left. The thing I forgot to say, obviously, uh, you'd think I wouldn't forget anything. Um, in chronological order, I've told the story a million times. When my sister got to the hospital and we were talking and she's like, tell me what happened. And I went through the whole story and I, uh, I told her about hearing Tamara Taylor call me likely and my sister's face turned white and I go what and she goes they called you likely and I go yeah why and she goes Joseph that means likely to die and I was like oh okay so that um I was like okay well I guess they were just really ready for me to die and take all the credit but uh that I would find out later so um I get back to work and first day of work no lie. First day of work, I, uh, I leave work, and I'm on the phone with my friend Michael. And uh, at Lincoln Center, there's a fountain in the middle of the uh, plaza. And I'm just walking around the fountain. I had time to kill, and we're just bullshitting on the phone. <coughs> and uh, I could see someone following me. It I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? I'm going, I go, dude, you're not going to believe this. And he's like, what? And I go, there's someone following me. And he goes, you got to be kidding me. I go, no. I said, let me call you back. So I kind of slow my pace. He kept going. And I turned around really quick. And I'm like, can I help you? And he was startled. And uh, he goes, oh, he goes, I'm, I'm not looking for any trouble. So I said, what's going on? And he goes, you're Joe, right? Which was kind of a silly question because I was still kind of banged up a little bit. Obviously, I was. But I know why he asked. I mean, I'm not making fun of the guy. but. And I go, yeah. He goes, uh I just want you to know that I was on the grand jury and uh, your testimony was unbelievable. And, and even if the police didn't testify, we were going to indict him. Your, your testimony was that powerful. Uh, the pictures, they had shown the pictures of me, uh, my injuries before I was repaired. And he said that, and I saw it for myself, that there were some people that wouldn't even look at them. They were so graphic. And, uh, you know, he basically said, he goes, look, I'm here for one reason. And he goes, I'm telling you, 
He goes, he was getting indicted no matter what. Once you testified, that was it. He was getting indicted. Um, he goes, but you should know that um, after you testified, uh, Officer Howell testified. And amongst the things in his testimony, uh, he testified to uh, right as the fight was starting, he started to open the door to come out, but he thought that Maxim Gelman may have had a gun, so he closed the door and stayed inside. And when he told me that, I was like, like, what? <laughs> what do you say to that? You know, I'm like, I, I, I remember saying, are you sure? And he goes, yeah. He goes, we were all looking at each other, and we were like, what? This is this can't be real, like, he's testifying to this. This is what our tax dollars are paying for. And he told me that once um, Howell left, basically the grand jurors, probably dramatic to say, surrounded the assistant district attorney, but basically said, hey, can we bring this guy up on charges? He, he basically just admitted that he didn't do anything, that he hid for his own safety. And uh, I think they were told, well, that's not what the focus is about or anything like that. But it kind of basically proved to me any doubts that I had that they basically hung me out to dry. So uh, now armed with this knowledge, I had to take the train ride home back to Philadelphia and basically tell my wife and my kids uh, what I had just learned. And obviously we got a lawyer because this was ridiculous and I wanted people to be held accountable. It's not just hockey I want people to be held accountable. It's actually real life. So uh, someone had suggested a lawyer. We hired him. I liked him a lot. Uh, I liked his attitude. He kind of had this pit bull mentality, and uh, I was very happy with him. And he basically told me uh, what he thought was going to happen and um, that he would, you know, we would take my statement, whatever, and we had a few meetings. And... He said, okay, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and okay, no problem. So um, he says, all right, so what's going to happen is we're going to file the motion, and uh, then we'll do discovery, and then they're most likely going to file a motion to dismiss, which will fight. Okay. So we file the uh, complaint, and even before discovery, they file the motion to dismiss. And I think that kind of surprised everybody. Um, well, it surprised me. Like I said, I don't have any experience with this, but I thought we would do the discovery phase, and um, but they filed a motion to dismiss. Before that, um, Andrea and I had actually gone to the city to speak with the insurance adjuster for the city, and um, I remember at the end of it, he wanted to speak to my lawyer alone. And when he came back to us, he basically said that the a jester told him that I was pretty much the worst nightmare for the city because I remembered everything and that I was well-spoken. I didn't have a record. There was really nothing on me that uh, they could uh, they could say, well, look, he's done this in the past. He's done that in the past. And uh, I spoke clearly and concisely, and I remembered every single thing. So that made me feel really good, thinking, okay, we have a case. I'm going to have these people held accountable. Uh, but like I said, then they filed a motion to dismiss. A couple of things you should know. Um, there's a report that the um, 
or I, I don't know if it's a report or whatever. My my sister knows what it is. It's it's like a something. It's like two letters and two numbers, like an MR twenty four or something, whatever it is. It's basically when they run you through their system to see if you've ever been arrested or ever had any problems. And from what I've been told, the police did that twice. They did it the first time um, when I announced the lawsuit, and then they did it again. Or they did it when, no, they did it when the incident first happened, if I'm not mistaken. And then they definitely ran it again when we announced the lawsuit. And as you may imagine, both times they came up with absolutely nothing. Uh, also, the, uh, I remember they had a couple of detectives come to my job to swab my mouth. And I thought that was weird for the victim. Um, but I, again, I have nothing to hide. So I said, okay, swab my mouth, swab away. <coughs> so, um, excuse me. So they swab my mouth. So they can run whatever reports they wanted to run. They can swab my mouth. They could swab my ass. They could do whatever they want. They weren't going to find anything, and they didn't. And I believe once they ran through everything they could possibly do to discredit me and realize that they can't, that's when they filed the motion to dismiss to get rid of me. And basically, um, their motion to dismiss had absolutely nothing in it that applied to my case. There were cases in there about uh, broken fences, about stolen cars, uh, about, uh, fuck, I don't even remember. It was so long ago, but um, just ridiculous things that had absolutely zero to do with my case. So um, at a certain point, my lawyer says, uh, calls me, and he goes, look, I have bad news. He goes, I've met with a bunch of my colleagues, and I really don't see any way that we're going to be able to fight this motion to dismiss. Um, you know, it's pretty strong. And um, he, goes, I, he goes, it's not just me, it's a bunch of other people and we've met and we're racking our brains and we just don't see any way we can fight this. So I said, okay, what can I do next? And he said, well, you have a few options. He goes, one, you can just um, withdraw the case and then, it, you know, that's it, it's over. Uh, he goes, or you can try to find another lawyer. He goes, but honestly, he goes, I think you're going to have a hard time finding a lawyer that's going to be able to see something that we couldn't see. And he, and he didn't say it out of arrogance. He was genuinely sincere. I, I could hear it in his voice, and I, I trusted him 100%. And I said, okay, uh, I said, but I don't think I'm going to find a lawyer that's going to do this on contingency like you did. He goes, probably not. He goes, because what will happen is he'll take your files, and he'll see what we had. And it's going to be hard for, for him or her to do it, so um, probably not. So then I said, well, what about me? Can I represent myself? And he goes, yeah, that's pro se. He goes, you could. He goes, I don't recommend it, um, but you could do it. And he goes, you know what? The reality is, and he goes, in a case like this, the judge may be more sympathetic uh, if you did that. He goes, you have nothing to lose. So I said, okay, well, I can't afford a lawyer. And uh, so I'm going to do this myself. And uh, basically what I did was I went to his office. I picked up, uh, picked up the papers. And I basically went to work. And I took their motion to dismiss. And um, before I worked, before I went to work, after I got home from work on my days off, I sat in front of my computer. 
I researched every single case in the motion to dismiss and I shot holes in every single case they brought up because none of the cases they brought up had anything to do with mine. And I filed my papers, uh, my opposition papers uh, to their motion. I basically went through my recollection of events and then it was just time to wait. And I waited and I waited and I remember one day I was at work and I got a phone call from a number I didn't know and it was a reporter from the New York Post that was leaving me a message. And they said, we just wanted to get your reaction to your case uh, being dismissed. And I was like, what? I remember telling my coworker, I got to step away for a second. And uh, I called them back and I said, uh, I said, what do you mean my case was dismissed? They go, oh, you didn't, uh, sorry you had to find out this way. Um, but yeah, they dismissed your case. So I said, well, I said, okay. Um, I'm obviously devastated. And I told them whatever I said. And then uh, even though he wasn't representing me anymore, I called my lawyer and he goes, yeah, they, uh, they dismissed it. I was gonna get in touch with you. Uh, in a little bit, uh, I just found out myself. So um, he goes, they dismissed it. So I said, uh, can I get a copy of it? And he goes, yeah, they'll mail you a copy or you could probably check online, it'll be there tomorrow. And uh, before they mailed me a copy, it was available online and basically it's a three page uh, dismissal from Judge Margaret Chan where she basically uh, agrees with every single thing I say. I mean, maybe not everything I say, but um, she does, <laughs> I mean, read I have it. You could, you could read it yourself. She basically agrees with my version of the story, calls me highly credible, but says based on uh, precedent, they, she doesn't have any choice but to dismiss my case, which to me is mind boggling because I thought that's why we had judges. Um, I always thought if you could put a certain amount of doubt in the judge that they would give you your time. And, uh, but I guess that's not how the justice system works. And uh, when I say justice, I make air quotes. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking. And, um, I, I, so I called my lawyer and I said, so what's, what are my options now? And he said, well, you can appeal. Um, I definitely would recommend you having a lawyer for your appeal. He goes, but you know, don't get your hopes up because it's going to be tough because now he's got to prove that the initial decision was wrong and then he's got to prove you right. And he goes, that's going to be tough and I really don't see anyone hiring you, uh, taking the case on contingency. And he was right. I called a few lawyers and uh, most of them couldn't even be bothered to uh, give me any time. And that's fine. I understand if, uh, you know, whatever. If I'm not of any benefit to them, then uh, they're not going to bother with me. They could probably, uh, you know, do whatever. But so at a certain point, I, I had to realize the fact that I was screwed. I couldn't afford a lawyer to appeal and I had to let it go. And, um, and that was it. So I think part of the reason why I'm doing this orally, that's what she said, um, is 
aside from the fact that the whole Twitter thing is time consuming, um, this year more than any year in the past has been difficult as I was approaching the anniversary. And I couldn't really pinpoint why. And, and when I say it's difficult, I don't mean it's difficult in like a sadness kind of way. Um, I'm not sad. I'm really angry. I'm really fucking pissed off. And um, it's been probably, you know, maybe since the middle of January where, uh, you know, I start to think about it and I'm really fucking pissed off. And I didn't really, I don't really know what the difference is between this year and the previous eight years. Um, the only thing I can think of is I see, uh, you know, obviously with uh, Bloomberg throwing his hat in the ring to be the Democratic nominee, he's on TV a lot. And I will never forget his words verbatim that day at that press conference. And it gnaws at me every time I see him. Um, and I, I'm guessing that's why I'm having such a difficult time this year with, uh, you know, now that we're at the anniversary, is that I have to see his stupid face on TV multiple times a day or hear his dumb voice on the radio or whatever, hear anything about him, and it just brings me back to that day where he didn't take the time to find out the whole story. He didn't take the time to do any research. And I understand, listen, I, I'm not naive enough to think that, um, you know, they just didn't brief him the, you know, Kelly or whatever didn't basically say this is what happened and he went up there and said it and I'm sure that happens all the time with these elected officials where they don't bother to find out the whole story, they just go by what they're told. Um, so in that respect, I, I, I can't necessarily blame him, but in a situation like this, I don't care if I'm thinking rationally or not. That fucking guy went up there and lied to New York City lied to the state of New York and lied to anyone in the world that was watching that press conference. Lied to them. And now this is someone that wants to be president. And listen, I don't hold any of these motherfuckers in any kind of regard. They're all corrupt shitheads. It makes me laugh when people argue about politicians because you're arguing with someone and the guy you're arguing for is a corrupt shithead and the guy that you're arguing against is a corrupt shithead. Yet you'll fight with people about people who don't give a shit about you. So, <coughs> excuse me. I don't have any misconception about any politicians. They're all pieces of shit. And none of them, the ones that I reached out to when I was in my time of need to help me with this, not a single one could be bothered even replying to a letter or an email or anything and they could not including including Cuomo who my mother had written to couldn't be bothered I think he sent back a form letter because he's a fucking asshole and obviously he's proving that now with how he's ruining the state but these guys are all pieces of shit and that day Bloomberg lied to everybody lied to every single person that saw that. And I now have to see his stupid head on TV every day. And I think, and, if, and as I'm listening to myself now, I'm like, yeah, this might be it. You sound pretty angry. Um, 
I think that may be why this this year is tougher than uh, than the most uh, most of the other years. I, actually, tougher than all of them, because I was screwed. You know, like for most people, you get attacked by a spree killer, and the spree killer is the person you hate the most. And while I have no use for Maxim Gelman, and I pray for the day when I get the phone call that he hung himself, so I can go piss on his grave. It's never about him in this. It's never about him. He's basically someone that attacked me with a knife. We had a fight, and it was over, and I survived. He, he did a number on me. It's like I'm not going to say everyone's like, well, you did this, you did this. I mean, listen, he did a number on me. If you looked at the both of us afterwards, he didn't have a scratch on him, and I got stabbed seven times, so he did a number on me. But when you break it down to its most basic thing, Maxim Gelman and I had a fight, and he had a weapon, and I didn't, and I did what I had to do, and I'm lucky to be here. Maxim Gelman is a scumbag. He's a criminal. You're not, you're, you're not supposed to have faith in criminals. They're scum. They're pieces of shit. You are supposed to have faith in the, the government. Oh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but in, in the grand scheme of things and in a perfect world, the government is there for you. The, ju the judicial system is there for you. The justice system is there to work for you. And I was screwed by the justice system. I was screwed every step of the way. And now we're going on nine years of me being screwed, and it's just difficult to fucking take that nine years later, I'm no closer to getting any closure than I was nine years ago. And I'm actually further away because as we go further and further away, this is not anyone's mind, nor should it be. It should be on my mind or my family's mind, not anyone else's mind. Um, but basically, I am further away from closure than I've ever been. And no matter how hard I try, I will never get closure. And that is something that is really, really difficult to take. So, um, like I said, this year has been very... This, it's not this year. I mean, the reality is it's been about a month. And it's been really difficult for me to uh, kind of suppress this anger that I have inside of me. Um, you know, I just... It's, it's hard for me to accept the fact that I will never have closure with this that the city was so petrified to get me on the stand because they knew that I had the truth on my side. They wanted no part of me. I'm not one that's really, um, I'm not one to pump my own tires. I'm really not. Like, I, I think I'm a pretty humble guy. I'm pretty confident in things that I know what, what I'm talking about. But in general, I'm just I'm just a regular guy. Like I'm just a law-abiding citizen, and I'm just a regular husband and a dad. And I really only care about my family. I don't. I don't need to pump my own tires because I'm nothing. I'm just a regular guy. Um, but I know, and the city knows, and the NYPD knows that had they had the balls to try me in court, and I use this word and I don't use it lightly, I would have absolutely crucified them because I have the truth on my side, and they know that. And I guess because they were such... Listen, legally, obviously, they were smart. They were smart to try to get rid of me 
It didn't cost them anything. They never approached me as far as settling out of court. Um, so it was just, hey, let's get rid of this guy. We're going to put a motion to dismiss. We don't have to face him in court and whatever. And listen, I'm, they're chicken shit, but they're smart. They're smart chicken shits because I would have fucking roasted them. And they got rid of me and it didn't cost them anything but the man hours to write up their bullshit motion to dismiss. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the relationship is between uh, the city's lawyers and Judge Chan, but, um, you know, it worked out for everybody involved but me. And um, I am having a really hard time not having closure. So um, anyway... This was a bit of a departure from what you're used to from this show. And um, I rambled on right now, geez, for over an hour. God damn, I'm sorry about that. But um, I don't really think there's anything else. But, uh, you know, I guess um, while I don't have closure, I, if I never have closure, I know, listen, I know there are very smart people out there. And I know... Uh, my window for appeal is uh, is over. It's long gone. But I know there are some pretty crafty people out there in, in uh, lawyer land. And uh, if anyone has anything creative and they know a way where we can get this back into court, I'm definitely all for it. I don't give a shit. I, I just want closure. And uh, I don't care if we get back there on a technicality. I am so ready to fight. I am really fired up right now. Uh, I've been fired up for nine years. I just want my day in court. I want closure. And I want to look everybody on that side in the eye. And I want to hear them. I want to hear them stutter. And I want to hear them stammer. And I want to hear them make up stories like they did in their version of events. Because I know what the truth is. And I want to see them sweat. And I want to see them cry. And I don't care if I get a dollar. It doesn't even matter. I don't care. It's not about the money. Listen, if they want to throw money my way, I'll take it. I'm not going to bullshit anybody, of course. Anyone that says, no, I don't want it, uh, that's not true. And the whole time, my whole thing was, let's go to court. And if I lose, I lose. So be it. But at least the system, it's there and it's in place and it's working. But I didn't even get the opportunity. That was taken away from me. And that's my right as a citizen is to have my day in court. That's my right. And they took it away from me because they were petrified. And it was never about, it was, it was about justice. It was never about anything else because once they took it away from me, then I just wanted to get back in there and I wanted to, I, yeah, I wanted to embarrass them. I wanted to make them pay. I wanted them to be held accountable. And I don't think there's any way to do that now. But if anyone out there has anything creative and a, a creative way to get this back into court, I'm all for it. I'm ready to go. I'll go right now. I have no issue with it. I don't need preparation. I know what the truth is. I'll go on the court. I'll go on the stand. And I'll go up against any of their lawyers. I will just say the truth. I don't give a shit. I just want my day in court. I just want some closure. And um, I know I'm most likely never going to get it. So um if you actually listen to this straight through, then uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Um, if you've never heard the story before, then uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know if you're prepared for that, but um, thank you to everybody. 
and I mean everybody who has ever reached out and sent me a note, uh, mail or email or uh, Twitter or Facebook. Uh, the comments from everybody has, uh, ha it, it's really helped me and uh, continues to help me. And uh, the support from everybody is overwhelming and um, you guys are the absolute best. And I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, just know that if I, if, if anyone can ever figure out a way to get me back into a courtroom against these guys, I'll do right by you because I will make them pay. And uh, even, if, even if my award is a penny, I don't care. I just want them to admit what they didn't do. That's all I want. I just want, I don't know if it's an apology. I don't know. I just feel like I need, I need them to know. I need to hear them say it. And maybe that's infantile, I don't know. But uh, I just want to hear them say, we let you down. And um, we fucked up. And I know that's never going to happen. But, you know, after nine years, it'd be nice to have some fucking closure. But um, anyway, so um, this was kind of a spur of the moment episode. And uh, this is on um, February 12th. So, um, like I said at the end of the uh, Mick Vakoda interview that I released on Monday, uh, got a really fun interview coming up with Jamie Rivers next Monday. Um, so I hope you enjoy that. And if you listen to this, I really appreciate it. And if anyone has any ideas, just let me know. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening.